Well, we're continuing our sermon series in the book of Matthew, um, and our sermon series is being called Jesus, Our King and Our Teacher. And today we're going to be looking at the Sermon on the Mount. Now, I've never experienced it personally, but I understand that to be in an earthquake is, of course, incredibly frightening. But friends of mine who've experienced it say that it's also best summed up by the phrase we use often in the vernacular, to be shaken to the core. And there's a sense in which over the past few months as we've been going through the COVID pandemic, we've experienced something of a cultural earthquake and we've been shaken to the core. Now, whenever we're shaken, then a number of things happen. First of all, it's disorienting and destabilizing. It's as though all the pieces in life are thrown up in the air and we're trying to put them back together again and make sense of what's going on. Secondly, when something is shaken, then fragile things can be broken. And I suppose that one of the things that's happened is that as we've been confronted with our mortality and the reporting on daily death rates, it's exposed that there's a lot of cultural fragility around having a philosophy of life that enables us to cope with death. And in that context, we need to be holding out the sure hope of the gospel, life beyond death, that makes us more robust as we confront our own mortality. Thirdly, whenever anything is shaken, there's a sifting that goes on, and it's this that I want to focus on particularly. That is, we're forced to evaluate what it is that we really think is important. Um, often the things which are less important kind of fall through the cracks, and in some sense rightly so, but we cling on to that which is most important. And for us as a Christian community and for the, for the church, this has been particularly salient. We've had much that has been stripped away. We still have these ongoing restrictions on gatherings. And so we've been forced to evaluate what is really important. And it's for this reason that we're focusing in on Matthew's gospel, because in Matthew's gospel, one of the great themes is Jesus being our king, but also our teacher and us as his followers. Matthew structures his gospel around five blocks of teaching, just as the Old Testament was structured around the five um, books at the beginning, the Pentateuch, um, from the word for five. And so Matthew is giving us the five blocks of teaching of the Christian life. And today we come to the first block of teaching, and arguably the most famous one, in the Sermon on the Mount. And I want us to, to look at this and to see what it is that's most important about being a follower of Jesus, and that is to hear his words and to put them into practice. Well, let's look at it together as we ask two questions of the passage. First of all, why should we follow Jesus? And we're going to see the answer is the kingdom of heaven. And secondly, how should we follow Jesus? And we're going to look at the kingdom life. Let's look first. Why should we follow Jesus, the kingdom of heaven? The Sermon on the Mount is all about the kingdom of of heaven. It's a phrase that is particular to Matthew. In the other Gospels, you get the same phrase, but used in a slightly different way, the kingdom of God. Matthew is probably reflecting his own Jewish background and you know, the focus of his audience probably being Jews as well, where he uses the phrase heaven rather than God, because Jews would often view God as being so holy, so transcendent that you wouldn't say God. And so you would use a euphemism like heaven. But by this evocative phrase, the kingdom of heaven, he's stirring our imagination to think about God's rule and God's authority and what that could do in our lives and in the world around us. And the whole of the Sermon on the Mount is about that. You can see that by the way that the phrase comes up at the beginning um, and at the end. And that's something called an inclusio, technically, which means that everything in between is about it. So Matthew 5, verse 3, at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
And then we get at the end of the beginning section, the so-called Beatitudes, verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 7, verse 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. So this phrase, the kingdom of heaven, dominates the Sermon on the Mount. It's all about this. And what I want us to see is that this is saying that God, through his teaching, brings all of his heavenly power and his heavenly authority into our lives. But notice how it is that God does, that, does this, or rather, who he does it through. Chapter 5, verse 1, Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. Here Matthew is deliberately echoing the Exodus where Moses goes up on Mount Sinai to receive the Ten Commandments from God and he then brings them down as an intermediary between God and his people. And so Moses brings them down and, and reads them to the people, gives them to the people. But notice Jesus goes up on the mountain here, but he doesn't go up to meet with God. Instead, he brings forth the teaching himself as God. No intermediary is needed here because Jesus is not only a king, but he's a divine king. And he's also our teacher. Jesus sits down um, to teach the familiar posture that would be adopted um, by the rabbis of the day whenever they were going to teach. And so as Jesus gives this divine authoritative teaching, notice the response of the crowd at the very end of the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 7, verse 28 to 29. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. I mean, this is a foundational difference between Jesus and every other religion. Jesus isn't a prophet of God bringing us teaching about God. He's not a, a sage or a, a guru who's able to tell us about God. Notice the immediacy and the authority. Jesus is God the one who brings us this divine teaching, the one whom we are to follow. And this phrase, the kingdom of heaven, is, is there to be evocative for us. We're supposed to be thinking, what could happen if God's authority, his good and loving and wise and insightful teaching suddenly came into our lives? What difference would that make? Uh, over the past um, year or so, Netflix has had a series looking at, um, first of all, Pep Guardiola and um, Man City, um, and they've called it All or Nothing, and then latterly looking at um, Jose Mourinho and Tottenham. And it's, the idea is to follow these two charismatic and arguably the two most successful football managers in the world and to see what their leading of the team is like and how it impacts the team. And it's pretty compelling viewing because they certainly are both colourful characters. But, you know, one of the reasons that we focus on these great leaders and one of the reasons that football teams are so concerned by their managers is that we know that if you get the right leader, if you get the right manager, they can have an enormous influence on the fortunes of the team. Well, what is true in sport is true in life. Have the right leader, the right authority in our lives, then it can make an enormous difference to how our lives go. And that is why one of the great themes of the early chapter, the Beatitudes of the Sermon on the Mount, is blessing. You know, the Beatitudes literally means blessing from the Latin word beatus. Um, and blessing means not just happiness, though, at least that, but it means um, approval, divine favour, a sense of human flourishing. And so what we're being asked to think about is if Jesus and his authoritative teaching comes into our life, 
if we put it into practice, the human flourishing that that will bring, the transformation, the change, the happiness, the joy that that will bring about will be like nothing we've ever seen before. Now that's the great motivation of why we're to listen to this teaching because of the kingdom of heaven. And the sphere of blessing goes out in all different areas of our life. Now today I know that we're very skeptical about authority and we're skeptical about law and um, teaching and being told what to do. You know, we are often uh, see an exposés on our leaders to see that, you know, they're flawed and they fail us and they let us down. And today when we think of law or teaching, you know, but particularly the phrase law, we often think of it in almost exclusively negative terms, you know, um, there to restrict our fun and to stop us doing what we really want, or maybe at best there to punish wrongdoing, but certainly not something that brings about flourishing. But I hope you can see that if Jesus is the divine king, if he has all of God's loving goodness and power and authority and wisdom and insights, then actually to live under his authority is a good thing. It brings blessing and flourishing. To live under his law is not something oppressive, but is something that's liberating. That's why the psalmist could say, oh, how I love your law. Not because he was a barrister, but because he knew the difference that would, make, would be made by putting God's law into practice. So this is why we should follow Jesus, because he's the divine king and our teacher and the sphere of blessing that's brought into our lives. Let's now look at how we should follow Jesus and we'll look at the kingdom life. Now, the first thing to see is that this life is intended to be lived out. It's fiercely practical. Jesus wants us to put this into practice, to obey, as he says in the sermon, sorry, in the um, Great Commission at the end of Matthew's Gospel, to obey all that I command. Now, there's lots of aspects of the Christian life, but at root, it is this, putting into practice Jesus' words. One of the very earliest phrases for what it meant to be a follower of Jesus was to be a follower of the way. That is the way of Jesus. A disciple is a, is a follower, a lifelong learner who sits at the feet of Jesus and listens to what he says and puts it into practice. Now, on one level, this should be uncontroversial, but I mention this because there is a popular reading of um, the Sermon on the Mount that sees it not as something to be put into practice, but rather sees it as um, a way that Jesus articulates the full requirements of the law of God so that we see that we can't keep it and therefore we turn in repentance and faith and receive forgiveness through the gospel. And rightly understood in that Lutheran reading of um, the Sermon on the Mount, this is not something we should put into practice because it would put a burden on our shoulders. This is something instead to throw us to Jesus. Now certainly we do want to be throwing our weight on Jesus through the Sermon on the Mount. There is a great danger if we try to do this in our own strength. Um, we're intended to be doing this in the power of the Spirit, but we are intended to be doing it um, look with me at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 7, verse 21. Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And he wants us to get this, so he repeats it. Chapter 7, verse 24. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. Notice the emphasis on doing God's will, 
putting these words into practice. There's no hint in the Sermon on the Mount that we should just look at these standards and merely throw ourselves on Jesus. We should do it. Now, as we do it, of course, this is not a way of earning favour with God. How could it be? Jesus pronounces the blessings of the kingdom on his followers even before they've done the teaching. No, this is in response to his grace. This is for those who are in the kingdom of heaven because of God's grace. But being in the kingdom of heaven also brings with it a kingdom life to be lived out. A life of beauty, a life of flourishing, a life of blessing. We are to obey what Jesus commands. And so we're to put this into practice. So how should we live for Jesus? Well, in our remaining time, we're obviously not going to have um, time to go through the whole of the Sermon on the Mount. And I would like to refer you to the daily devotionals that Mark and I were doing over the past few months that finished a, a month or so ago, where we actually went verse by verse through the whole of the Sermon on the Mount. You could pick those up and you, know, you could look at what it, what it looks like to live this kingdom life out in much greater detail. Instead, I want us to focus in on the Beatitudes, these first eight norms or virtues of the kingdom life, because these really are a wonderful summary of the rest of the Sermon on the Mount and what it looks like to live out this kingdom life. And as we look at the Beatitudes, I want us to see how comprehensive they are. That is how much they account for all aspects of life. There are eight of them um, when you divide it up and they come in uh, four lots of pairs. And each pair starts as a concentric circle from the core of our lives, working out from our relationship with God, to our relationships with others, to our life in the community, and then to our life in the world. So let's look at the Beatitudes and particularly the first pair as we look at this kingdom life and these kingdom virtues. The first pair is about our relationship with God. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Now what is this teaching us? Well, we need to be clear on what this is and what this is not. Poverty of spirit um, is, of course, different to material poverty, though often the two are connected. But it's not self-loathing. It's not looking down on ourselves or woe is me, a sense of beating ourselves up. In fact, it's not self-anything. Poverty of spirit is about my relationship with God. It's about me recognising that before God, I am spiritually and morally bankrupt. I have no money in the bank, so to speak. Why is that? Well, because of sin. That is because of my moral failure before a holy God. This might not be a popular thing to think about today, but God is perfect. And a sober analysis of myself reveals that I am far from perfect. More than that, that at heart, I actually don't want God in my life. I see his authority as a threat. I see his law as a burden rather than as a source of blessing and flourishing. And so I, I push him to the peripheries of my life and I say, I don't want you, God. I want to live life my way. And when I realize that that is what I am like at my core, that causes a poverty of spirit. Not only a poverty of spirit, but also a mourning. That is a sense of profound sadness about my sin and about the consequence of my sin and how it offends God and how it impacts those around me. And again, this is so countercultural because in our culture, we're told to think much of yourself, to make much of yourself, to love yourself. After all, if you don't love yourself, no one else is going to love you for you. But here, it's about poverty of spirit before God that then receives his grace and his forgiveness. 
that then receives his comfort. Notice right at the beginning that poverty of spirit is the requirement for being in the kingdom of heaven. In other, in other words, it's completely counterintuitive. The sure criteria for getting in the kingdom of heaven is to admit you don't deserve to be in the kingdom of heaven. And as you humble yourself before God, as you mourn your sin, God comforts you and restores you and reassures you that my child, my son, my daughter, you're forgiven, you are in the kingdom of heaven. So that's the key about our relationship with God. It then works out from that to our relationships with others. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Now meekness is a slightly strange word and it's certainly a strange quality today. For a world that is so much about self-actualization, about self-fulfillment, about you do you, pushing yourself forward because you've got to get ahead. Meekness is almost completely the opposite. Meekness is realizing that actually I don't need to push myself forward for two reasons. First of all, I'm not in control of my life. God is. If, um, if it comes to my career, God is in charge of my career. When it comes to relating to other people, God is the one who governs my relationships. And so therefore I don't need to push others down to push myself ahead because ultimately it's not competitive because God is in control of all things. Secondly, it's also about realizing that the gifts that God has given me are not there primarily to be used for my own benefit, but to be used in service and love of the other. So meekness is not a kind of modesty, a, a reticence, or certainly not a false modesty that says, oh, I'm not good at anything when actually you're very gifted. It's about recognizing you have gifts, but they're there to be used in the service of others and God will exalt you in the proper time. And blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they will be filled. Again, sometimes I think this is misunderstood or misread. Righteousness in the Bible, of course, often refers to our relationship with God and our right standing with him. But it also refers to our relationships with other people as Bible scholar Alec Mottier puts it, righteousness is about being right with God and therefore being committed to making right all our relationships with others. So this is about having right and harmonious relationships with other people. And the sense of filling there is the satisfaction that comes from living life well, from being in good relationship with other people, starting with my relationship with God, but then working out and echoing out into other spheres of life. Thirdly, as we move out from relationships with other people to the wider life of the community, blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Again, it's hard to overstate as we think about life in wider community, just how countercultural this is. Mercy is a rare quality today. Um, but a vital one if our communities are not to fragment, if they're actually to cohere and stick together. Shakespeare memorably said that mercy blesses us twice. It blesses both the giver and the receiver. And in a world that is steeped in shaming people or calling them out on social media, or when people offend me, just moving on and from that friendship or that community and having nothing to do with it anymore, mercy is a rare quality. Mercy is about seeking restoration. It's about forgiveness because of all that I've received from Jesus Christ, his mercy and his forgiveness. And where it says for they will be shown mercy, it's not making forgiveness in the Christian life 
um, conditional on us being merciful people. Rather, it's saying that actually the merciful person knows that ultimately at the last day when they see Jesus face to face, they will be the recipients of this overwhelming mercy and restoration as he welcomes us into his finished kingdom. And so that's a great motivation for our mercy. And blessed are the pure in heart for they will see God. Well, this is about authenticity of life. It's about our life and our lip matching up. It's not saying that we're perfect, though it's pushing us forward to try to um, change and become more and more like Jesus, but it's having sincerity of motivation, purity of desires, um, being a person where there's no guile and there's no hiding. We deal authentically in our relationships so that what you see is what you get and what restoration that brings to the community. And finally, the last pair of the Beatitudes, these kingdom virtues, this kingdom life, is about life in the wider world, maybe particularly life um, in the world with people who don't know Christ. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Because Jesus has come to bring reconciliation and peace, so he wants his people to be ambassadors of reconciliation and peace. Now, this is not just being, you know, kind of um, like a weather vane. You'll move and go whichever way the cultural wind blows you so that you don't offend anyone. Rather, peace, proper peace, always has an edge to it. Um, there can be no uh, peace without justice. And so peace means laboring and seeking to bring justice into the world. This is about shalom, that rich word meaning peace from the Old Testament, um, which is about a restoration of all things. So it means being a person committed to seeing people reconciled to Jesus Christ, um, coming to know the peace that he brings. But also as we seek to bring that, it means about being committed to shalom in all areas of life, seeking the good of our city, longing for justice in our communities, um, seeking a better world, a peaceful world. And as we do that, we know that we are the children of God. We've got this divine mandate to do this, not that we're better than anybody else, but we're being used as God's hands and feet to go out into the world. And there's a realism as the um, Beatitudes end. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That is, it reminds us that as we seek to live this life of peace and as we seek to share the gospel of peace, it won't always be approved of. You know, those who labor for justice, those who share the gospel, will be persecuted. That's been the way for the last 2,000 years, and it will continue to be the way, even in our time. But we know that we're in the kingdom of heaven, and therefore, even if others reject us, we can do that important business of sharing the gospel, being committed to peace, because we know Christ accepts us. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So this is the kingdom life, a life of living out kingdom virtues. I hope you can see that it affects all aspects of life and I hope you can see how attractive it is to live under Jesus' authority, to have his kingdom norms shaping us and transforming all aspects of life. But notice that it's always for those who are in the kingdom. That is, it's never do this and you will be in the kingdom. This is never a means of getting into the kingdom. This is you are in the kingdom, so now go and do this. And I, I want to end on this so that we really take this away and we understand how this kingdom life works out. 
In my gap year, I worked at a school for disadvantaged children out in New Zealand, um, for children who had been from broken homes, often those who tragically had experienced abuse. And I remember one kid particularly um, who, um, who was out there and who arrived at the school and he'd come from a really, really challenging family background. And over the course of his first year, he must have been warned and threatened with um, you know, being excluded from the school probably three or four times because his behaviour was just so bad. But the school wanted to help him and wanted to support him. But eventually his behaviour was so bad he was kind of in the last chance, as it were. And the headmaster called him into his office and he put on the table his file, which by this stage was um, you know, quite full of all of his misdemeanours and his bad behaviours. And the headmaster said to him, this is your file, there's all the things you've done wrong, you know, and you can see they're considerable. What I'm going to do with these is I'm going to put them away. And I think symbolically he put them in the shredder, though I'm sure he probably kept the records. Um, and he said, you now you've got a completely um, uh, white clean slate. All of your misdemeanors have um, been pressed reset. You know, you're, you're forgiven. You're in the community here. The question is now that you're in, what are you going to do with it? And you know what? It was transformative for this kid. The story about this echoed around the school because from that day on, he was never the same again. And I actually went back to the school about three or four years later and he was the head of the junior school. He'd been in the first year when I arrived and he'd become the head of the junior school. And he went on to become one of the school prefects. In other words, knowing that he was in the kingdom, not because of anything he'd done, but knowing the forgiveness he'd received changed him. It transformed him and he became a different person. How much more for us because of all that Jesus Christ has done for us. Because we are in the kingdom, we should live this kingdom life out and be different, living out the virtues of the kingdom. Let's pray that we would do that. Heavenly Father, thank you for your grace and your mercy. Thank you for the blessing and the good authority of the Lord Jesus Christ, our divine king, our divine teacher. Help us to live for him because of all that he's done for us and to live out these kingdom virtues so that our lives might be different and so that we might experience blessing and be a blessing to other people. We ask it for your name's sake. Amen.